I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Okay, Diary, it's happened. Damn, we didn't even last a month. Dallas to Phoenix to L.A. No jobs anywhere, but plenty of dope. How you pay for it, something else. Use your imagination, the man said. And even that doesn't work sometimes. After a while, you don't even know what you're buying. Pure acid turns out to be a horse tranquilizer. I got on a jag with speed. Didn't eat for five days. Gotta stay away from the hard stuff. Sometimes grass just doesn't make it for me. Chris likes heroin, but, but it makes me too sick. Little Alice searches for the perfect drug. Still not sure if I'm pregnant. None of us takes that pill, because even if we had it, we never know what day it is. Chris and I found a place to crash. Weird lady, a weird man, but can be that choosy. They keep their dope in candy dishes. Oh, God. How, how do we get out of here? We're, we're like prisoners. They, they just got Chris in the other room. I, I, I can hear her screaming. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. What you just heard was a clip from the 1973 TV movie adaptation of Go Ask Alice. If you're unfamiliar, Go Ask Alice was a massively successful book that has remained continuously in print since its initial publication in 1971. It was a rather controversial book upon its publication as it purported to be the real-life diary of an anonymous teenaged girl who, after taking a trip on acid, 
sees her life spiral out of control into drug addiction and prostitution. Now looked back on largely as a sensationalistic piece of anti-drug war propaganda, the book nonetheless did manage to resonate with many youths in the 1970s. That's in large part because of Go Ask Alice's premise. It's a book that, again, purports to be written by a real troubled teen. The fact that the writing itself isn't very polished only adds to the sense that this could be written by a real teenager. But who is the real author of Go Ask Alice? Well, that's a story in and of itself, and it'll lead us to a very conservative, highly religious Mormon youth counselor who arguably helped start, or at the very least accelerate, the satanic panic of the 1980s. Joining us on this edition of the program is Rick Emerson, author of Unmask Alice, LSD, Satanic Panic, and the imposter behind the world's most notorious diaries. In this conversation, Rick and I explore the truth about Go Ask Alice, moral panics, the war on drugs and the era of Richard Nixon, literary hoaxes and frauds, and much, much more. So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Rick Emerson author of Unmask Alice, LSD, Satanic Panic, and The Imposter Behind the World's Most Notorious Diaries. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really excited to have on. Uh, on this show, we've talked a lot about issues related to uh, what I would say is the, the culture of paranoia, uh, that we see sort of in America over the decades. And the author of this book is definitely dealing with that. Rick Emerson, author of Unmask Alice, LSD, Satanic Panic, and the imposter behind the world's most notorious diaries. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. So this book is fascinating because it deals with the sort of like LSD, anti-counterculture drug panic of the the 1970s, right after, you know, the 60s and the Manson murders. And it also deals with a sort of, you know, a literary hoax, essentially. Um, and it just covers so many different topics, including uh, the satanic panic of the 1980s. You know, characters like Oprah Winfrey even uh, show up in this book. So I guess where I want to start is maybe you could give us sort of the, the setting, uh, the set the mood a little bit with uh, the period that this book takes place in, because it mainly takes place in, I would say, the 1970s, and it basically revolves around this book called Go Ask Alice. But before we get into Go Ask Alice, what is happening at the beginning of the 70s? What's the political climate and the cultural climate? It's funny you mention this because I so I actually wrote something the other day for this. I ended up not being able to use it, but I, uh, I I wrote this just this couple of paragraphs to myself, thinking that I would use it in this interview, and I wasn't able to. But I this is what I wrote. Um, it says. Imagine an America riven by social conflict. A divisive president is driven from office and seemingly escapes prosecution while his underlings take the fall. And citizens realize that their leaders aren't just more corrupt than anyone realized, but possibly more corrupt than anyone imagined. 
Overseas, the nation is dragged into proxy wars with a newly emboldened Russia, while at home, inflation and spiraling gas prices threaten to crack the economy. The country splits down the middle over school prayer, abortion, LGBT issues, gun control, and a huge chunk of the voting public believes that Satan-worshipping pedophiles are secretly controlling the government. That's the America that produced and embraced two separate books, a pair of teenage diaries that bracketed the 1970s. So I don't know if I don't know if any of that sounds familiar, like it might resonate in our current era. But but for people who are you know looking at the news and they're thinking you know just the world is going crazy and there's all these things happening, you know the 70s were. I, I mean, I'm certainly not enough of a historian to you know to to draw you know to 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 draw too many direct parallels, but it does seem like a lot of the vibe that's happening now is even more present in the 70s. So you've got. You know, uh, in the early 1970s, for example, uh, there were, and this is hard to believe, but it is true, in 70, 71, 72, there was a lot of social unrest and civil unrest at home, a lot of domestic um, terrorism happening, you know, sort of attacks from within the country. It's so much so, and this is an unbelievable fact, but it is what they call a checkable statistic, that the domestic bombings, in other words, people either attempting to bomb something or, or, or successfully bombing something in the United States, attempted and, and uh, successful bombings were happening at the rate of five per day in this country. Five bombings a day, including at banks and police stations and the U.S. Capitol. And so the whole country just kind of felt on edge. And of course, coming off the 60s, there's, um, you know, the, the water, uh, uh, you know, Watergate is still a few years ahead, but Nixon is already in office. He's a deeply divisive president. He's heading toward reelection in what would then be the biggest landslide in American history. We've had a whole decade of social unrest in the 60s. And, you know, campuses have just become these sort of conflagrations of, you know, just all kinds of battles over things. The Vietnam War has been raging and there's protests over that. It's, you know, and and the interesting thing about that is, not unlike some things today, is that how you see all that stuff, or certain, some of those issues anyway, depends on your perspective. You know, changing social mores and changing um, attitudes toward, you know, women or sexuality or towards drugs or even, even pop culture, you know, music and movies. To some people, it seems like progress. And to some people, it all seems like calamity. And one of the real flashpoints of this is is the effect that this is having on you know on teenagers this idea that well kids used to be well behaved and respectful and they used to you know mind mind their manners and they did with it and now now they're out of control and so parents are just increasingly um upset or angry or frightened about all of these things swirling around their kids and that's where that book that's the that's the environment into which go ask Alice emerges yeah, and I just want to add, in a way, you have to sort of talk about the 60s a little bit when talking about Go Ask Alice, because, you know, it, it comes out, I believe, in 71, right? 71, yeah. Yeah, and so we're right at the end of the 60s. You had the, the Manson family murders. You had uh, the, the Altamont stabbings with the Rolling Stones. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, in the early 70s, you have Kent State, which to me, I've always told people that was like the cinder block being dropped on the anti-war movement where you have these, you know, you basically had kids that were protesting the war getting shot. I mean, the National Guard was there, right? You know, and it really is a tumultuous time. And Nixon comes in and he's like, I'm the law and order president. I'm going to restore order. Everyone's out of control. The youth are out of control. Drugs are everywhere. There is sort of a moral panic going on. And I think Go Ask Alice is so representative of the sort of reactionary mood of the time in a lot of ways. Uh, so, 
Go Ask Alice, it's uh, presented as a diary of this girl who is, you know, diving into the world of LSD, you know, and I always liked that it was called Go Ask Alice. It's almost like, uh, you know, Alice going into the warped wonderland of uh, mm-hmm. psychedelics. Uh, but maybe you could give a little bit more background on what Go Ask Alice is and uh, how it came about. And it's written, quote unquote, by anonymous, but we sort of know who maybe the real author was in a lot of ways now. Yeah, so Go Ask Alice is, it is ostensibly the posthumous uh, diary of a teenage addict. And so it's the story of this this girl who, as a side note, um, everybody, including myself, you know, we all just call her Alice um, from there's because the name of the book is Alice. And so obviously that just became what we called her. But the the diarist, the, the girl who presumably keeps the diary actually doesn't. We never really learn her name definitively. There's actually a there's a passage in the book somewhere that implies that her name might be Carla, but there's no real way to know. But everybody sort of calls her Alice. And so the it is presumably her anonymous diary, and it's the story of how she is sort of lured into drug use by unsavory friends. You know, she goes to a party and and uh, and you know they're passing out soda, and it turns out that her soda is laced with LSD, which they've done as a favor to her, so she can you know sort of get a, a larger sense of the universe and of you know existence and whatever. And so after being dosed with LSD, she gets lured into drug use. She ends up, uh, you know, running away from home. Um, she you know, falls into, you know, just falls in with the worst sort of reprobates and, you know, hellraisers and relapses, gets clean, relapses, gets clean. And she's and not just, just doing LSD. She's popping pills and doing everything else. Oh too. yeah. It's yeah. It's, it's, it's sort of, and it's sort of a crazy kind of timeline of drug usage, because if you read the book chronologically, you know, she, she's this very, you know, um, straight lace. Well, in fact, some of the um, some of the early advertising for the book actually uh, it it lays out. I, I don't think I have it in front of me here, but some of the um, there's an early ad for the book that the publisher took out in a lot of papers. I think, including the L.A. Times, and it actually starts with the phrase. I think it says, you know, Alice is Alice is white, fifteen, and middle class, or words to that effect. And so she's, you know, it's it's this very like, you know, it's it's this almost this this um, this caricature of what for a lot of the 20th century was, was portrayed as quote, you know, the, the all American teenager or something. And obviously all American is sort of code for a lot of things in that context. And, but yeah, so she just, she runs away from home and she's doing all these drugs and she starts with LSD and then she's, you know, then she's taking speed and she's shooting up and then like much, much later. Go on. I'm sorry. (laughs) I was going to say, and then much, much later, she finally tries marijuana. It's sort of like this reverse gateway progression that she goes through, which was, you know, one of the things that some people early on were like, well, that doesn't quite ring accurate to me. But, you know, um, and and then at the end of the end, I was going to say, spoiler, she this is I think it, it is like a posthumous diary. So everybody sort of knows this. But at the end of the story, she this girl um, dies. And the backstory was always that this diary was then found by her parents and her parents uh, had it published to, you know, to help warn other kids or other uh, families and to help them avoid kind of the same fate. And when it came out in September of 71, it, uh, it just said, go ask Alice buy anonymous. And then when it came out in paperback the next year in 72, they added this really definitive subtitle and it just said, go ask Alice a real diary by anonymous. And there was no, um, you know, editor's credit. There was no real adult presence 
at all. I mean, there was a there was a brief note inside from just the editors saying, you know, we've changed some names to protect the innocent, but it was very much presented as just this posthumous diary from this um, from this teenage girl. And uh, and as I said, and it really emerged into the society, as you said, post the Manson trial, but where LSD especially had been really painted as especially about the Nixon administration as, as really just, uh, you know, public enemy number one in terms of drugs. Uh, it, I think at that point, LSD had really only been illegal for a few years. And, but in that year, in 1971, I think it's 800,000 Americans tried LSD for the first time, which was the biggest number ever. So in other words, so even as it's, as it's being made illegal and the war on drugs is imposing these massive penalties for taking LSD, more and more people are trying it. And to a lot of Americans, LSD just seems like the devil incarnate. And so Go Ask Alice kind of confirms the worst fears for a lot of parents. Yeah, a few things I was going to add to that. So I think what listeners should know is there was a time where LSD was legal, essentially. And, you know, yep. uh, the copyright Sandoz uh, who were making it, uh, that expired. So then, you know, basically homemade chemists could just make this and then it caught on from there. And I think the other thing uh, that we should note is Go Ask Alice is interesting in that in a way it's not just like about the fears of kids doing LSD. It's it's about the fears of them popping pills and sexual debauchery. And it, it goes into like all these different uh, directions. And what, what's interesting to me about it is that you know, I, I think there's been times where that book has been challenged, uh, like parents wanted to sort of censor it. They didn't want their kids reading it in schools and whatnot. And I'm, I'm like completely against that kind of like censorious sort of attitude. But what I find interesting is I do think it's a book ultimately that it's sort of acting like a morality sort of story, like, ah, oh, don't do drugs, kids. But it's also very I feel like it's a book a lot of people probably read to be titillated by the stories of drugs and and sexual debauchery. It's very explicit and there's a lot of, you know, profanity and, and sort of just sex scenes in it and things. Uh, I, I brought up a line before we got uh, on air here. Uh, I, I remember one of the diary entries starts with another day, another blowjob. And I'm just it's, right. it's a very sensationalistic book. And in some ways I'm reminded of the old like 1930s movies like Reefer Madness when I'm reading it. Do you think that's like um, a fair assessment or am I going overboard? Well, it's there? definitely one of the things that scandalized people when that book came out because it's, you know, Glass Alice in some ways, I, and this is a good time to note that it's, you know, so that book came out 51 years ago uh, and it's still in print. It's never been out of print. It's sold you know, somewhere over 5 million copies by most estimates and multiple editions. Uh, yeah. Full 50th anniversary edition just came out last year. And, and it really, in a lot of ways, go ask Alice invented the modern young adult genre, what we think of as young adult novels, because for most of the 20th century books for young people, they were often just picked by parents or librarians because for one thing, the, um, for one thing, sort of commercial infrastructure wasn't necessarily there. Uh, the emergence of suburbs and and actually the emergence of shopping malls really played a huge played a huge role in giving um, kids and teenagers their own economy because it was this idea that you you didn't necessarily you could go shopping on your own without your parents. And there were stores that, that emerged that catered just to kids and just to teenagers. And so it was sort of a perfect storm of things. But it's but. Um, Around that time, so 1970, I think I have this written down somewhere. I think 1970 is when 
Um, Judy Bloom puts out uh, Are You There? Got It To Me, Margaret. And then the following year, Go Ask Alice comes out. And the books are obviously very different. One's much more graphic and explicit than the other. But but Go Ask Alice is is sort of a, <sighs> advance isn't the right word, but it's a much more extreme, explicit version of the sorts of kind of mature topics that were being discussed in some of the young adult fiction of that time. And as you said, it was this really frank, and graphic discussion of sexual behavior and of, uh, you know, just sort of running away and living on the street and, you know, turning tricks and all of these things that, you know, if you're a parent reading that in 1971 or 1972 and you are already kind of frightened of what might be lurking out there in the big bad world for your kids, you know, people were not used to anybody, much less a, you know, religious middle-class teenage girl just saying another day, another blowjob. That was just not a thing that parents were prepared for. And it really shocked a lot of people. And it, it added a lot of fuel to that, to that book's publicity. I was going to say too, I mean, I guess for me, I've always viewed it as sort of a trashy, campy, like, I, I think it's like an exploitation book uh, masquerading as a morality thing, but I guess there's also people that it really did resonate with them. And they were like, oh, you know, I, I can relate to Alice. Like there were people that were, I guess, um, deeply impacted by it. Absolutely. Uh, it's, you know, what's interesting about Go Ask Alice is I sometimes call it a sort of a sort of a social Rorschach or a literary Rorschach in the sense that different groups of people can look at that book and do look at that book and see entirely different things. So if you are a parent who is worried about the state of the nation and the things menacing your kids, you're going to look at that and you can see all confirmation of all your worst fears. Um, you know, the sum of all parental fears and go ask Alice. If you are, um, you know, if you're somebody who thinks that, uh, you know, uh, that literature and popular culture have gotten too coarse and graphic and we need to start really, you know, cracking down on the sorts of things that are being marketed to kids, you're going to look at go ask Alice and you're going to say, this is a prime example. If you are, um, you know, if you're somebody who uh, um, sort of sees, if you're somebody who is often suspicious of things and ideas being marketed to you, you know, you sort of see a lot of propaganda in the world. Go ask Alice. Will obviously, it will absolutely seem like an example of propaganda. However, if you are, um, you know, especially a teenager, and this is, I think one of the is one of the things that contributes to that book's longevity. If you are a teenager. And you could not possibly pay me enough money to go back and live through my teenage years again. Um, go Ask Alice is really going to resonate with you, has a much higher chance of resonating with you anyway than it does with, if you're an adult. Because, you know, if, I sometimes tell people that if you are an adult reading Go Ask Alice for the first time, or if you haven't read it in 20 years or 30 years, and you, you think you remember it, but you go back and read it now, it's going to seem... A, kind of badly written, and B, it's going to seem really overblown and melodramatic. In fact, uh, you know, I, I knew a parent who read Go Ask Alice as an adult, and, and she said that, like, every time she was just reading this diary, she just kept thinking, oh, it's not the end of the world. Quit being so dramatic about the, you know, this. But, of course, when you're a teenager, there's no middle ground. I mean, when you're a teenager, every day is either the best day of your life or it's the end of the world. And equally... Um, you know, there's these two sort of, when you're a teenager, I mean, this is all very sort of basic stuff, but it's, we sometimes forget that when you're a teenager, you're stuck in this strange middle ground where 
you're still kind of a child in terms of what society lets you do in the way society expects you to behave and, you know, and, and the things, the sort of security that you crave. And yet you're on the brink of adulthood. So you have a lot of adult responsibilities, but not entirely. And you're not quite able to leave the house yet and be out on your own, but you, you know, but you don't want to be infantilized. And the other thing about being a teenager is that you simultaneously feel like you are losing your mind and that you are the only sane person on the planet. And Go Ask Alice really captures just that whole giant, messy, frenetic ball of emotion. And that's one reason why it resonates, I think, with teenagers even now. So I want to get into the figure of Beatrice Sparks. But before we do that, um, let's talk a little bit about how you discovered uh, Go Ask Alice. And for my part, I'll say I came about it through a very weird set of circumstances. I, I always have been a huge cinephile. You know, I, I, I just devour movies. So one thing that I've always been a fan of are all these, uh, you know, 70s and 80s sort of ABC movie of the week uh, features. You know? and, and a lot of them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And a lot of them are these like really dated now. And, you know, you see them as just camp classic type movies like uh, Sarah T, Portrait of a Teenage Alcoholic with Linda Blair or, uh, you know, the one... Um, Desperate Lives, I was telling you about before we started uh, the movie with Helen Hunt famously doing Angel Dust and jumping out a window. I mean, they're ridiculous movies. And uh, Go Ask Alice actually got adapted into a uh, TV movie with uh, William Shatner, Andy Griffith, and, Andy and even Griffith. Jolie Adams from uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. And, you know, it's a really sort of hilarious movie when you watch it now. You're like, wow, this is so dated. But that's how I became familiar with it. And then I bought the book when I was, you know, in, in, in college and I wasn't that impressed. I just thought, ah, this is kind of campy. But how did you discover Go Ask Alice? What's your story? Well, I discovered Go Ask Alice uh, when I was a, I think I was a freshman in high school. And so I walked into the school library and it was on the, uh, the, the just returned shelf. So somebody just brought it back to the library and they hadn't refiled it. They just put it out under just returned. And like a lot of people, I, you know, saw the cover and the cover had this, you know, this girl's face, it's sort of half in shadow. And, and I looked and I was like, that's interesting. And then I looked and I just saw, you know, maybe, maybe the, you know, the, the eight most effective words in a title ever in terms of just getting you to pick it up. It just said, go ask Alice, a real diary by anonymous. And there's just so much going on in that, you know, that pushes so many of your intrigue buttons, uh, no matter what age you are, because first of all, any book that is, I mean, this is a thing that even, even now they roll out as a gimmick occasionally, you know, any book that's written by anonymous, you're instantly like, I have to know more. Tell me, who is it? And, it, you know, it's the idea that there's this sort of person behind the curtain. And so that's instantly intriguing. But I think even more than it being anonymous, it was the fact that it said a real diary because, um, you know, because, you know, you're never, ever supposed to read somebody's diary, right? You Again, know, there's something, there's sort of a titillation thing going on. Oh, I'm going to be reading something that I shouldn't be reading, you know? Yeah. And the idea, you know, it's like a diary is sacrosanct and you're never supposed to look at that. And so now you're not only being given a chance to read somebody's diary, but you're sort of being given permission and actually sort of encouraged. It's like, no, 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 you can do, you can read this diary. It's actually good for you to read this diary. And so it's like, it's, so it's a diary and it's someone anonymous. And, you know, and if you are, I was going to say if you're a teenager, but even if you're not, I mean, there is, I mean, it must be said a sort of, 
you know, there's a sort of weird, morbid intrigue to the fact that it's not just anonymous, not just diary, but it's diary of this dead girl. And so I remember reading that. I think I read it twice back to back. I think I read it because it's a, it's, it's a book you can read in a night. And I read it and I read it again. And the next day or a few days later, I was at school and I remember talking to a friend of mine uh, and I said, um, and I said, hey, so I read that book, Go Ask Alice. I said, so it's by Anonymous. Like, who is that? And she looked at me like I wasn't very bright. And she said, well, nobody knows. That's why it's called Anonymous. I was like, okay, but how can nobody know? And that, I think, is the thing that was a real lure for a lot of people. It's just this idea that, you know, somewhere out there, you know, is is the Alice or Alice's parent, you know, that is, you know, it's somewhere could, I think actually, I don't know if I have it here, but one of the versions of Go Ask Alice, I've got more versions of Go Ask Alice on my bookshelf than anybody needs. Um, one of them actually says, let's see if I've got it here. Um, one of them actually says on the inside, it says, um, Alice could be anybody. Alice could be somebody, you know, Alice does drugs. And so it's just the idea that you know, that she was real and she's out there and she could be anybody. And anyway, and so, and I think like a lot of people, you know, I initially thought it was totally true. And I thought it was totally true for the same reason that a lot of people did, which is that it said a real diary on the front. And there's this idea of, well, they couldn't say it if it wasn't true. Right. And, you know, and I think I follow the same trajectory as a lot of readers, which is that by the time I was in my thirties, certainly, um, I, I guess I just sort of decided I'd assumed that it was just pure anti-drug propaganda and it was a whole cloth. I, I actually had so my personal theory, speaking of the 70s, by the time I was in my 30s and I'd sort of just decided, well, it's all hogwash. The theory that I'd landed on, I don't know where this came from, but this was my personal theory that the Nixon administration had teamed with like a like a Madison Avenue advertising firm to create this diary to then sell sort of under the radar as a piece of anti-drug propaganda that it was, you know, some Don Draper type and Nixon had worked together on this, which ended up being like 20% true, but you know, but that was my own theory. I was going to say too, I, I love that title, go ask Alice, because uh, it really is. You do get that image of, uh, you know, Alice going down the rabbit hole, but it's a very perverted rabbit hole in this case. <laughs> well, and it's, and it, there's so many things at play there because it's, it's, you know, because you wonder who is Alice. And again, it's just a very evocative phrase and it does conjure up Lewis Carroll. And also, uh, you know, in 71, it was only four years past um, White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane, which had been such an iconic song uh, and a song of the San Francisco scene and of the drug movement and of psychedelics. And it's one of them, this didn't make it into the book actually, uh, but one of my favorite sort of facts about this whole saga is that Grace Slick of Jefferson Airplane, who wrote and sang the song White Rabbit. In other words, she created the phrase, go ask Alice. She wrote that phrase in 1967 for that song. And and the song White Rabbit continues to be iconic. I mean, so much so that they used it in the trailer for the most recent Matrix film. And so that it's definitely part of the culture. And yet in 1998, I think, when Grace Slick was getting ready to publish her own memoir, her story, and you know, my life in rock and roll and my, you know, throughout you know, and her this long career, Grace Slick was actually going to title her memoir, Go Ask Alice. And at some point, somebody I think must've pulled her aside and they were just like, you can't do that. Like it's already been, you know, like there's a book like that nobody's going to, you know, you, she sort of lost possession of that phrase, go ask Alice. It, even though she wrote that song, that phrase doesn't belong to her anymore. That's how iconic that book became. So then 
in regards to this character of Beatrice Sparks, who who is she and what what is she the real author, I suppose, of Go Ask Alice? So Beatrice Sparks is uh, is a very uh, a conservative mother of four who lived in, uh, for the most part, lived in, in Provo, Utah. Um, More, from a Mormon background, right? Yeah, yeah. She grew up in Utah, and yeah, was a Latter Day Saint, and was very, you know, deeply conservative, which not a surprise, you know, in that in that culture, in that faith, in that state, and um, you know, she was, I think, she was the president of the, I forget if it was the Provo Republican Women's Organization or the Utah Republican Women's Organization, but she was the president of that, and you know, and she and her husband were both in a lot of, uh, you know, the sort of very conservative social organizations, and so, uh, and so she did come from a very conservative religious background and um and then uh you know it was eventually sort of uh you know eventually kind of outed herself as the the quote editor of of go ask alice and you know i without without i should say as a side note here that you know it's like when you go to see a movie and somebody tells you like whatever you do like just don't you're better off not Googling anything about it. Try to try to know as little as possible. And I'm not going to say that here because a lot of this story, it's a big story and a lot of this story is already known and different people know different parts of the story. So I won't say that, but I will say that it is, it is such an amazing kind of just endlessly fascinating story that, um, I, you know, that I can discuss a lot of it without ruining some of the spoilers because there's just so much in it. And so without giving too much away, I will say that over the years, as we just said, there's been this, this evolving, you know, this evolving notion of whether Go Ask Alice is real or not, and 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 what Beatrice Sparks' participation in it was, because you know her name has been on the copyright for a long time, which you know a lot of people pointed to that as proof that she was the author, which isn't necessarily proof of that, because you know copyright can transfer to a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. But I will say that um, the you know, at the beginning, the consensus was that Go Ask Alice was absolutely authentic. I mean, probably 90% of the early reviews and the early coverage treated it as totally genuine. And then, you know, by 2000, 2005, that had shifted to sort of a 50-50 or 60-40, you know, with a lot of people just being like, well, it's absolute propaganda. That was that was basically my view going into this. Um, of those two views, that it's absolutely real and it's absolutely false, um, I will say that uh, neither of those is neither of those is totally true, and um, and by the end of the book, I do lay out in broad strokes sort of what really happened behind the scenes and the real background of that. And uh, you know, while it's it's not what I expected to learn, uh, it does it's fascinating and does make a lot of sense in context. Um, it's also worth noting, you know, that. Beatrice Sparks, in addition to, quote, editing or writing, depending on your view, go ask Alice, uh, you know, she then released, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, she released eight more, essentially, teenage diaries. Including a very popular one dealing with uh, teen suicide. I think it was called, was it Jay's Diaries or? Jay's Journal. Yeah, which came out in, uh, in 1979. So, so that. So for people who were convinced that she was secretly just writing these books, the fact that she just kept, I mean, finding them. I mean, if you find one teenage diary, you know, or if a parent gives you a teenage diary to edit, okay, well, that's, you know, fair enough. Two, you know, three, four, five, six, seven, you know, by the time you're finding or discovering the ninth teenage diary, I think, you know, that's when, that's when people are arching an eyebrow and asking what's really going on here. I think it's interesting too, because 
to me, it's it's almost more disturbing if it's not all fabricated. And she sort of she was a, I believe she was a youth counselor. And it, it, it's disturbing to me that she's maybe fabricating a lot of it. And she's making it's almost like she's making a composite character out of people she was counseling. And it's like we don't get to know the real people uh, that, that she was counseling. We're just getting this sort of uh, fictional version and the real people that 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 maybe she was basing this off of are sort of lost to the ether in a way. It's kind of yeah. exploitive in a way, is what I'm saying. Yeah, no, and it's and I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, it. So we mentioned a book called Jay's Journal, and Jay's Journal came out in December '78, January 1979, and um, you know, Go Ask Alice is is definitely the bigger, better selling, and more impactful book in terms of its name recognition. I mean, even people who've never read Go Ask Alice kind of have heard of it or they know the broad strokes. Jay's Journal, which is sometimes I, I kind of describe it as being like a sibling book. It's, uh, you know, it's another Jay's Journalist, the posthumous diary of a teenage boy. And it's the story of, in, in Jay's Journal anyway, the story is that he gets, just as Alice got lured into drugs, it's that Jay got lured into witchcraft and black magic and then ends up committing suicide. And then his diary becomes Jay's Journal. And it's... <sighs> In some ways, it's interesting because Jay's journal is, I mean, there is absolutely, a indisputably, a real-life person at the core of that book. In other words, Jay's journal is absolutely based on a real-life person, uh, a young man named Alden Barrett who um, died and who's you know, and some of whose entries and journal uh, writings ended up in Jay's journal. Yet at the same time, in some ways, Jay's journal is as you said, almost more fictional than Go Ask Alice because there was this, you know, this core of truth and then this embellishment uh, put around it. And, um, you know, in a way that did overshadow the real person for a long time. So I want to get more into the satanic panic element of the book. But first, uh, you mentioned that a lot of the press and reviews sort of were just enamored by Go Ask Alice. And I think uh, in some ways you can look at the book to see how, uh, at times, the press has been snookered um, by, you know, fakes or moral panics. Um, how do you think the press plays into uh, your book, Unmask Alice? Uh, in, in terms of of uh, in my assessment of how of how that led into or or, or, or whether they were how the how the press treated these books. Yeah, yeah, that and like, why do you think they weren't more skeptical of it? Um, you know, I, it's interesting if you go back and read a lot of the early reviews of Go Ask Alice, first of all, they were, you know, overwhelmingly, um, um, the overwhelming consensus was that it was a real book. I would say probably 90% of the reviews, there were some outliers. There were people that sort of said, well, this kind of seems, you know, fishy, or there were, you know, there were libraries that stocked it in fiction or that just didn't want to, you know, take a stand on whether it was real or not. But most of the press, especially um, this really glowing review in the New York Times in 1972, um, you know, just said, treated it as an authentic diary. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that, you know, it's, you. Uh, we were talking earlier about whether Go Ask Alice is, is well-written, whether it's a good book. And it's sort of, it's sort of like asking, it's like when you ask somebody if the Ramones, you know, were, were a talented band. And 
that all depends on what you're looking for in the music. You know, if you're if you're looking for someone who's, uh, you know, a technical virtuoso, then probably the Ramones or the Sex Pistols are not for you. If you're looking for someone, you know, if you're if you're looking, if it, all that matters to you is how it makes you feel and the visceral impact of it, then the Ramones are an absolutely flawless band. And so it is with some of the writing in Glass Alice. It's it's kind of ragged and you know, and there are things about it that there are things about it that just don't work on a technical level in terms of objective writing. But if you're looking at it as a diary in a way that to some people felt like more evidence that it was real, it was like, well, this, this is kind of badly written. So it's probably a teenage diary because that, that explains why it's maybe unpolished or that explains why it's sometimes melodramatic or repetitive. And there was another element to it, which is that, um, especially because it was credited to anonymous. I think reviewers, nobody wanted to be seen to be sort of kicking, you know, the, the memory of this dead girl. Nobody wanted to be stomping on the writing of this dead girl. You know, she's like, she's already had this tragedy happen to her. She's, you know, she's, she's already fallen into drug use and all of this sort of debauchery. And now she's dead. And it's like, nobody wanted to pile on by saying, you know, also she can't write uh, or, or even worse by saying, you know, she didn't exist because, because nobody really knew for sure. And it was, you know, nobody wanted to insult the memory of this dead girl by implying that maybe she never really existed. And that it was also a time where, um, you know, in some ways it's hard to tell in terms of, you know, the phrase, dis, the, the term disinformation has become so loaded over the last couple of you know years, but in terms of just, information of whatever veracity being filtered out, you know, there's a lot of discussion now about how there's so many channels for news and there's so many outlets for news that it makes it difficult for people to tell what's real and what's not and what's true and what's not. But the seventies had that same problem, but you know, the, the, in a different way in that there were only three networks or four, if you count a PBS, there were two news weeklies, there was Newsweek and time. And there were a couple of major newspapers but whatever your hometown newspaper was usually just recycled a lot of the stuff from all of the outlets I just mentioned. And so if an idea got into the mainstream, they replicated really quickly. And so it became a self-perpetuating idea that Go Ask Alice was authentic. Yeah. And I'm, I, I'm just thinking of how this book seems very relevant now in the age of, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of moral panics happening. I think we have to deal with issues like fake news. And I always like to point out to people that, some of the things we're witnessing today, uh, like, you know, the rise of sort of conspiracy theories like Pizzagate and QAnon, it's not really that new. And in some ways, I think Go Ask Alice almost asks, uh, acts as a precursor uh, to a lot of that stuff, because, you know, I, I was reading up on uh, some things related to the satanic panic of the 1980s uh, before this interview. And I thought it was interesting that less than a decade after Go Ask Alice came out, uh, this book comes out in 1980 called Michelle Remembers. Mm -hmm. This is the first big satanic ritual abuse book written by a psychiatrist about his patient who levitated in the air and she was ritually abused. And, you know, it, it starts the whole sort of uh, Satan is in your suburbs. Get worried, parents. Don't let your kids listen to heavy metal or play Dungeons and Dragons. And that stuff acts as sort of a precursor uh, to the sort of QAnon type stuff we see today. And I think you can draw a line between Go Ask Alice 
and books like Michelle Remembers, which then leads to, you know, Oprah Winfrey and Geraldo Rivera doing specials about how the Satanists are coming for your kids. There is sort of a line between Go Ask Alice and the Satanic Panic. And I think your book really tries to draw that line and show where it is. Yeah, it's it really is. Uh, I think Mick Jagger once said that there's no present, there's only recycled past. And uh, and I the author the author Max Brooks actually also said something. He said something about human, you know, humans are great at not learning lessons. And so in, so in my book, at one point I talk about, um, so there was this in 1981, there was this fear that swept through Provo, Utah, all of these stories that swept through Provo, Utah about uh, sinister clowns that were trying to lure kids into the forest or something, you know, the, the evil clowns that were, you know, somebody reported they were trying to like, you know, get a kid to walk with them into the forest or they were trying to give kids, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I No, I know what you're talking about because yeah, they're sort of drugs that, you know, the stamps that may have been laced with drugs or something. And so that's in 1981. Yeah. I, I was going to say there's the, the phantom clown flaps uh, around the country. of like, Oh, the, there's weird clowns and, outside with vans. Are they coming for a kid? Right. Yeah. And so that's in 1981. But then if you fast forward 35 years to 2016, you get another rash of sinister clown sightings up and down the East Coast. A lot of them were in South Carolina, where, again, it's the same thing. If a clown was trying to lure kids into the woods, trying to give them something that might have been laced with drugs. So it's exactly the, you know, this is very much the same story happening on this, you know, this 10 or 20 or 30 year cycle. And a lot of those things repeat. Um, You know, I talk a lot in this book about Jay's journal and how it fed into and in some ways helped to unleash, you know, the satanic panic. But then, you know, then if you look to, so last year, so this, let's see, in March, 2021, there was a survey that came out from the, um, I always try to get this, the Public Religious Research Institute, which is nonpartisan and, and, you know, very reliable organization in terms of, in terms of surveys and in terms of public opinion. They put out this survey in March of 2021 that said, uh, I believe it was 28% for Republicans, but for the entire country, it was still 15%. It said 15% of all Americans believe that the U.S. government, media, and financial systems are controlled by a cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles. That's 15% of all Americans, according to the survey. And so, as you said, these are beliefs and panics that don't really ever go away. They just get rebooted. You know, They sink and then they surface again and again. So specifically, how does Jay's journal, what are some specific aspects of it that feed into the sort of satanic panic of the Reagan era? So Jay's journal, as I said, is, um, you know, it's the story of this young man who gets pulled into witchcraft and black magic and then dies and his parents discover the diary and then Beatrice Sparks edits it for publication. And it came out in January of 79. And there's a couple of very specific ways that it directly depending on your view, caused or certainly accelerated uh, the satanic panic. One of which is Jay's journal sort of created, almost single-handedly created the idea of a cult-related teenage suicide. I mean, teenage suicide had, you know, suicide had always been, it's always been, a, a, you know, as long as humans have existed, that's been, that's been part of the human, you know, dynamic. But um, specifically, just as uh, when Go Ask Alice came out, the rates of teenage runaways and the rates of drug use had been had been really spiking. Uh, the teenage suicide rate had been going up a lot. Let's see, and I actually jotted this down. Um, uh, so from 
you know, in the in the couple of decades before that, from 1980 to 1992, uh, the rate of suicide, uh, you know, among teenagers, depending on how you uh, depending on how you categorize children and teenagers, you know, it was up like 120 percent in some categories. And it was really starting to become this, you know, this epidemic that was getting a lot of attention. And there were there was and there were no real easy there were no easy explanations. Nobody quite there were nobody quite knew why nobody knew exactly what was prompting this gigantic surge in teenage suicide because it's such a complicated issue because mental health is such a you know it's such a labyrinthine sort of topic and there's so much to unpack there and and it comes it comes loaded with a lot of things that are either complex or that people are uncomfortable talking about so when you start talking about teenage suicide you know there's issues like depression but even that doesn't really tell you anything because depression is such a vague term. There's no real, you know, it doesn't, it can mean any number of things and there's substance abuse and there's issues of abuse at home and there's, you know, sexual identity questions and a lot of things that make people uncomfortable. And Jay's journal came along and right as parents and, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and mental health officials and teachers and social workers, they are dealing with this, seemingly this tidal wave of teenage suicides and they don't have any way to explain it. And Jay's journal appears and says, you know, here's the answer. It's actually just this simple. It's the devil. And that's way easier for a lot of people to grasp and accept than something that is so overwhelming and complicated as mental health, which, you know, there's no simple solution to depression. There's no easy answer to depression. And so people will grab at an easy answer sometimes if it's offered. Yeah, I want to delve into that a little bit because I think when we're talking about Go Ask Alice or uh, Jay's Journal or books like I mentioned, like Michelle Remembers, I think the really insidious thing about these types of media uh, or even those those satanic panic TV specials like the ones Oprah and, and Heraldic did, there is something very insidious about them in the sense of it's hard being a teenager. It's a difficult time for for anyone, right? You know, because you're going through all these hormonal changes and you're probably rebelling against your parents a bit uh, and just you're going through so much all at once. And I think that it's really sad that instead of looking at, hey, maybe there's something that parents are doing or maybe we're just not understanding our kid and maybe this is just a uh, they're going through growing pains and they're just going through a phase. There's so many people that want to jump to it's because of this heavy metal music and Dungeons and Dragons, and they're possessing our kids with the spirit of the Antichrist. It's Satan everywhere. You know, I think that ends up actually hindering our ability to deal with a lot of these issues like teen suicide or even, uh, you know, like issues of runaways. You know, I, I mean, it's much easier to say, oh, it's the devil. Uh, oh, it's all just Charles Manson's fault. No, well, you know, a lot of runaways happen because, you know, daddy got handsy with their, their right. young girl. And people don't want to look at that. And the insidious thing about things like Go Ask Alice or Jay's Journal is that culturally they they allow us to look away uh, from a lot of serious issues and pin the blame on a supernatural force that's corrupting society. Yeah, yeah they well, they allow us to sweep things under the rug and say like, well, it could, you know, it because, you know, it's humans are 
and I'm certainly not exempting myself from this, we are naturally drawn to, you know, there's an appeal to a simple answer and a simple solution. And, you know, and, and also there's a very human um, attraction to scapegoating the idea of saying, well, this bad thing happened. I, I forget who said this, but somebody once said that, you know, the easiest story to sell, especially in America is this bad thing that just happened is someone else's fault. And, you know, and if, you know, and also, I mean, to be fair, if you are, so if you're a parent, and this is a thing that happens dispiritingly often in the real world, and it happens at several points in, in my book, if you are a parent whose uh, son or daughter has attempted or, or actually committed suicide, uh, you know, the parents of, the parents of a kid who kills themselves, there is just I mean, first of all, that's like an obviously traumatizing and horrifying thing on any number of levels, but it's, there's also this long-term damage done by it in the sense that if your kid commits suicide, parents are left with this endless wondering of why did this happen? Because sometimes there isn't an obvious answer, at least to the parents that, you know, they, there's this notion of what signs did I miss? What didn't I see? What could I have done differently? How did I fail my child? And, you know, and, and sometimes there are clues or there are signs or indications of what was wrong. And sometimes, sometimes there just aren't, or there aren't that people are able to see. And so there's this endless wondering of what did I do? What did I do? Why? And so the, the thing that they return to again and again is why, 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 why did this happen? And that why, if you are left, if you are the parent of, of a child to commit suicide, that why can just eat you alive over time. And it becomes a real, it becomes for them, the parents and for the families that are left behind that itself becomes this horrible, um, you know, it becomes a, a very mentally and emotionally and even physically damaging thing. And if someone appears and says, you know what, I have the answer. So at least at the very least, you can stop wondering because I can tell you why. And that person may have their own, uh, as you said, insidious agenda. They may be well-meaning, but misinformed, or they may be selling something. They may be peddling a faith or a dogma. And if you're a parent desperately searching for an answer, you will sometimes grab at whatever's offered. So I, I agree. Like to to be fair, I could see why you know parents would be drawn to uh, certain ideas about why why did my kid do this. Um, but I guess what what I want to get at is what is the sort of wreckage left behind from you know the type of moral panics that maybe a, a hmm. book like Jay's Journal uh, sort of fuels. Like what what are the impacts it makes on society that may be not so nice. Well, I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. One is that so we've heard, we've talked about the um, you know the the idea of occult related teenage suicide, and that became and undoubtedly still is, but especially in the eighties and nineties, that became a thing you heard about all the time. And at one point in the book, I present this sort of timeline. I think you know I pick half a dozen cases or something of of teenagers who committed suicide, and where you know then days or weeks after the fact, it was just decided. Uh, by someone, someone came to the conclusion that, well, it was because of, you know, witchcraft or black magic or a Ouija board or Dungeons and Dragons. And of course, when you slot in one answer like that, what that does is, as you said, it takes all of the other potential answers and the, you know, the actual answers off the table. It just sweeps them into a corner somewhere. And, and what it says is like, we don't need to think about this anymore. We don't have to examine this any further. We found the answer, even if the answer is, you know, ridiculous. And, and so, Jay's journal had a very, um, it really 
indisputably undermined the cause of adolescent mental health and dealing with adolescent depression. And it absolutely undermined efforts to mitigate or prevent teenage suicide. Uh, I actually mentioned, and there's more that I didn't have space to mention, but I mentioned in my book, uh, you know, there were a couple serious books about psychiatry. There was a book written by a child psychiatrist named Mary Giffen that came out that specifically mentioned Jay's journal and and treated it as though it were absolute truth and absolute fact. And there were, you know, and that was a thing that happened. Uh, there's a, there is a section later in my book where I talk about a, uh, someone who sat on, I believe he sat on the American, I might be getting this wrong, I'm doing it from memory, but I believe he sat on the, he was an advisor on the board of American, he sat on the board of American psychotherapy and he discovered Jay's journal, which again, Jay's journal is, you know, it is full of, I mean, it's full of things like levitation and possessed house cats and, you know, all kinds of things that are just, that should be giant red flags that like, this isn't real. And yet this, this man who had, was in a position of incredible authority over the way mental health was dealt with in this country, read Jay's journal and he thought, this makes absolute sense. This explains why these kids are so depressed and why there's so much teen suicide. And that was a real damaging thing. The other, one other big example is you mentioned Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and anybody who's watching that show Stranger Things right now knows that, you know, they was, they're dealing with this in a pretty direct way. They're talking about the satanic panic and the fear of Dungeons and Dragons being a tool of the devil. There had always been these sort of, you know, low grade fears, especially I think in certain ultra religious communities that Dungeons, you know, anytime you're talking about demons and spellcasting, there's always going to be some people who think that it's bad news and that it's dangerous, but the real, uh, the real conflagration, and I'm looking over here at my timeline, the real conflagration about Dungeons and Dragons started in January of 1980. And that's when it really became a flashpoint. And that started um, in a town called Heber. And it was just, just outside. It was just a bit like 25 minutes away from um, Pleasant Grove, Utah, which is where uh, Jay's journal is set, where Alden Barrett lived. And the the Dungeons and Dragons panic that erupted that then raged across the country as one thread of the satanic panic. That is a, that is a direct, um, that's a direct result of Jay's journal. Jay's journal directly led to this idea that Dungeons and Dragons was a portal to Satanism for young people. And that, you know, and in the eighties and nineties, it's one of those things that as we get farther away, it can be easy to sort of mock, but, you know, that had real fallout. I mean, there are people who ended up going to prison for years and sometimes decades because they were convicted of things that not only they hadn't done, but that they couldn't have done because they were impossible. And um, Jay's Journal wasn't the only cause of that, but it was absolutely one of the things that helped to accelerate it. And it sort of merged. It's like this, it's, you know, it's like all of these sort of smaller floods like books like Michelle Remembers, all merging together and creating just this torrent that just laid waste throughout the 80s and 90s. I was going to say, I think the other impact is, you know, I'm not like big into playing Dungeons and Dragons. I knew people that were into it, but I never thought it was like a bad thing. In a lot of ways, you know, I, I think Dungeons and Dragons probably allows a lot of kids to, uh, you know, explore their creativity and their imagination. And, you know, what, what really upsets me about the moral panics is I feel like a lot of times we end up muzzling young people's sort of ability to imagine things and sort of exist in a sort of uh, fantasy world at times. You know, I, I think, you know, fantasy play is good as long as you don't, you know, as long as that doesn't become the only thing in your life. But, you know, uh, I, I think that like, 
you know, there's always like a war on kids. Uh, the, the, the kids are into heavy metal too much. That's bad for them. And it, it's sort of like we, we sort of like want to muzzle the creative impulses of children. I think that's also a casualty of the kind of moral panics we have around these things, if that makes yeah, sense. I, I think, yeah. And I think it's I think it is easy to um, you know, I think it's easy as you, you know, the farther away you get from your own childhood and your own adolescence, I think it is um, I think it's sometimes it's sometimes difficult to remember what it's like to be a child and a teenager. And I don't just mean that in the sense of you forget exactly sort of how, um, you know, how tumultuous your teenage years can be and, and all of that. I mean, that's part of it, but it's also, you know, people, um, people forget exactly how much children are drawn to and, and really need, you know, creative outlets. And, and some of the things, I mean, I'm like the billionth person to make this example, but I mean, people, people sometimes, you know, people will always talk about the grimmest fairy tales and how grimmest fairy tales, if you go back and read them are way darker and way more, you know, sort of unsettling than you remember as, as an adult. And so, you know, or when you, uh, so when I was a kid, I read a lot of books by Roald Dahl, like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and James and the Giant Peach. And there are things in those books that, I mean, they're great books, but they're also, they are genuinely dark at moments. And because that's one of the ways that we as humans learn to process emotions and we learn to process imagination and, you know, and it's how we grapple with early concepts of death. And that's a thing that we know when we're kids and we know when we're teenagers and we sometimes forget when we're adults. I, I was going to say, you know, you brought up uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, that that scene in the movie with the tunnel, I'm like, oh, that's traumatizing to this day. <laughs> well, and, you know, a thing that people, so for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, it's a great, Roald Dahl's books are a great example of this, you know, in, in a lot of ways. I mean, there's, uh, in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory in the I, early on in the book, there's actually a chapter that is because Charlie, of course, is, you know, he comes in this family and they're very poor. There's not enough to eat. And it's right before he finds the golden ticket and gets to go into the factory. But um, his father loses his job at the toothpaste factory. And so and it's so it's Charlie, his parents and then two sets of grandparents all living in this one room house, all eating this cabbage soup that the mother is watering down to try to feed them all. And there's literally a chapter called The Family Begins to Starve. And he and Roald Dahl talks about how the grandparents are actually so malnourished that it's almost like their bones are kind of poking through their skin. And it's sort of horrifying to read as an adult. And when you're a kid, it's not like you're thinking it's awesome, but you're also, you're also processing it as just a story and just a, as a way to understand these sort of textures of storytelling and good and bad. And I mean, James and the Giant Peach by Roald Dahl is actually an even better example because on page one, on page one of that book, Henry Trotter's parents are killed by i think it's a runaway rhinoceros at the zoo and then he's sent off to live with a pair of ants who beat him <laughs> and it's unbelievable if you go back and read that as an adult you just don't remember how dark it is there were just a few more things i want to touch upon here uh going back to beatrice sparks uh what's the mm -hmm. best evidence we have for oh hey maybe this isn't as uh on the up and up written by some teenage girl as people think i mean i think one of the pieces that stood out to me in your book one of the pieces of evidence is that I'm pretty sure there's lines in Go Ask Alice that sort of repeat in her later books. She sort of recycles lines. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of things. I mean, so this is one of the things that the Internet did sort of accelerate is people kind of comparing notes and saying, hang on a minute. And 
Uh, so in Go Ask Alice, there's things that don't really make sense. I mean, I, obviously there's this sort of reverse drug escalation where she starts with LSD and is shooting up and then eventually does marijuana. That's one thing people pointed out. There's also that, so there's this disclaimer at the beginning that says, uh, you know, Go Ask Alice, you know, we've, uh, you know, it's a real diary, but we've changed, you know, name, names and places and dates have been changed for privacy, et cetera. And yet, even though the names have supposedly been changed, there's points in the diary where the names are redacted. So it says things like, I met Fawn blank at the, you know, at the store today. And it's like, well, if they're changing names, why is this redacted? And then as you noted, there are, there are some lines in Go Ask Alice that turn up almost word for word in some of these subsequent teenage diaries that Beatrice Sparks edited. Um, there's actually, so I think I said she wrote, I was, it was nine or 10. I think she wrote nine or she produced nine teenage diaries. There's actually this phrase. Let's see if I can get this right. There's this phrase. Um, bad thoughts are like birds. You can't stop them from flying overhead, but you can stop them from building nests in your hair. So that's like this sort of, this sort of aphorism. And it, turns up in not one, not two, in three of the diaries that she supposedly edited. And so that, you know, there's a lot of indications if you just read the text that there's something kind of amiss. So one interesting thing while reading Unmask Alice is I thought of other cases of uh, literary fakery or literary hoaxes. And I was specifically thinking of, uh, this is closer to when I was growing up, but uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this literary persona known as J.T. Uh, Leroy, uh, oh, yeah. but it was it was a fake persona. Um, I forget the author's actual name. Uh, Laura Albert was her name. Uh, but the J.T. Leroy books were, you know, purportedly these sort of semi autobiographical accounts of a teenage boy experiencing poverty, drug use, uh, abuse, et cetera, et cetera. But it comes out later that you know J.T. Leroy wasn't a real person. It was this woman, Laura Albert. Um, so why does this happen maybe in, in the literary world? Why do these literary hoaxes occur? Because it doesn't seem to occur necessarily in other mediums um, or media as much. Well, it is. That's an interesting question because it's, you know, imagine if this happened, because it does seem to happen every five or six years that there's a memoir or a nonfiction book that comes out. And then often it's, you know, it's critically acclaimed or it's, you know, it's held up as a shining example of the form. And then it, and then it comes out later that it's either largely embellished or it's entirely fictional. And it seems to happen again and again and again. I remember the, you know, you mentioned Oprah back, you know, when the, the um, uh, James Fry million little pieces scandal happened in 2006, where he'd written this memoir that was, you know, absolutely acclaimed, just sold hand over fist and Oprah, you know, made it one of her book club selections. She just raved about it. And then it turned out that it was, you know, a lot of it was just, was just straight up fiction. And, and Oprah, you know, to, to, to her credit, I mean, brought uh, James Fry and his, uh, his editor, Nan Talese, onto her show and just, you know, and really just reduced them to, to literary gruel, like right on stage. And I think a lot of people at that point thought, OK, the tide is going to turn this now. This won't happen again. And of course, it happened. It happened again, like the next year and the year after that. And it's you raise an interesting point, because, you know, if that happened with documentaries, I mean, not that there aren't documentaries that are, you know, fishier that have been fabricated, but it doesn't seem to happen at nearly the same rate. And it's, you know, it is an interesting thing. And the thing I didn't really appreciate until I, until I researched this book, uh, one of the things I learned is that, you know, in the United States, most products have to be accurately labeled in terms of their contents. I mean, there are things that are deceptive and there are bad actors, but if you go buy, you know, a sleeping bag, if you go buy a can of soup, 
it has to tell you what's what's inside that. The soup contains this, and the sleeping bag is made of this kind of down and this kind of fabric. With books, it's just an honor system. And the thing about honor systems is honor systems only govern people who don't need them. Yeah, I was going to say uh, briefly in that regard. I mean, I guess people will say, oh, well, there's documentaries that were hoaxes. Like, uh, what about the Blair Witch Project? And I'm like, well, that's a bit different because even the Blair Witch Project had like an end credits where you know that the characters right. are fictional. So, yeah, um, and it's yeah. yeah, books, you know, in terms of publishing um, and, and they're just I mean, part of it is there doesn't seem to be any. There doesn't seem to be any financial or legally, uh, you know, motivation for authors, editors, agents, publishers to really vet things thoroughly. And I'm not saying that everybody look mistake. It, it's absolutely true that you know mistakes happen sometimes, even with the best intentions and best efforts. You know, books all, can't always be 100% accurate, especially if you're dealing with historical uh, with historical events and th- people do get things wrong and memories differ. That's different than something that is an intentional whole cloth fabrication, but there doesn't seem to be much in the way of consequence for publishers, for example, who do that sort of thing. And so, you know, there's no, as long as there's money to be made and no real consequences, it's going to keep happening. So there's just two more things I wanted to touch upon. I know we're yeah. running up against the hour, but I, I really want to touch upon these two aspects. Uh, the first is Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. How important is Richard Nixon to, I guess, uh, the, the sort of background story going on in Unmask Alice? Because in a way, Unmask Alice almost asks, acts as a, I would say, social history of an entire period, you know, the 70s and 80s. So what role does Nixon play in all of that and uh, Nixon's war on drugs? Uh, so the war on this is this is actually a really interesting thing that I that I didn't know you know I I didn't really appreciate sort of a lot of the things that you mentioned LSD earlier on and how you know LSD was legal for a long time and then it became illegal and then and then when Nixon launched the war on drugs and that you know that sort of rolled out in seventy seventy one it really across the board upped the penalties for you know, for everything that had previously been illegal. And it made a lot of things that weren't illegal, you know, prohibited them. And um, Nixon was, you know, he was really zealous about prosecuting this war on drugs for a lot of reasons. You know, there were the reasons he gave publicly, but then there were the reasons, uh, you know, the reasons that he and his advisors discussed behind the scenes. So, for example, one of the reasons that Richard Nixon wanted a war on drugs and um, some of his staff later talked about this. John Ehrlichman gave several interviews where he talked about this, that prosecuting a war on drugs um, made it that was a that was a backdoor way to to jail and prosecute a lot of his political enemies. And I think it was John Ehrlichman who said I think the quote was he said, he said, we knew we couldn't make it a we couldn't make it illegal to be against the against the Vietnam War or to be black, but by using the war on drugs and by using drug laws, we could actually we could absolutely target the communities that we wanted to target. I'm paraphrasing now, but you know, we could target you know the anti-war community. We could we could target the radical left. We could target the black community without saying we were doing it. We would just you know we would do it under the rubric of this war on drugs and and the war on drugs and Go Ask Alice emerge at about the same time. And I mean, they were, it was sort of this perfect, horrible timing, uh, you know, of this message being propounded by the government of LSD being public enemy number one and being this thing that is going to decimate American youth. And then right on schedule, Go Ask Alice came out and appeared to, 
you know, appeared to to underscore that, appeared to verify and confirm all of those fears, because after all, it was labeled a true story. And, you know, Nixon is, uh, you know, he's an endlessly fascinating uh, character. And if you told me at the beginning of this of this whole saga, I mean, I had no idea that this story would go from Hollywood to the you know, the the FBI behavioral science lab at Quantico, much less into the Oval Office. And yeah, Richard Nixon makes a couple of appearances in this book. And it's always it's yeah, it's always uh, always fascinating and horrifying. The last thing I wanted to talk about was the inclusion of another character into this book, the radio and television personality Art Linkletter. And uh, if people don't know, uh, Art Linkletter, his daughter, Diane, Diane Linkletter dies in 1969. And it's attributed to her using LSD and having a bad trip. And, you know, she dies because of it. So how does Art Linkletter end up figuring into the story of Unmask Alice? Uh, so this is, this is another thing that I, I didn't really, I knew a little bit about it. And because I heard a lot about this story growing up, but I didn't really know a lot of the details of it. And um, you mentioned that, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the Helen Hunt after school special where she you know, is like given slipped PCP years, angel dust or something and ends up jumping out of a, off a, you know, out of a window. And um, in some ways that Diane Linkletter, Art Linkletter's daughter is, she's kind of the starting point for a lot of those stories and a lot of those kind of quasi urban legends that go around. So uh, Art Linkletter was a, a massive celebrity in America. He was, I sort of referred to him as being like a national dad. I mean, I think kind of the closest we have now is, is, maybe somebody like Tom Hanks, but he was just this incredibly beloved figure and very, you know, just sort of warm and jovial. And and then in uh, October of 1969, his daughter, Diane, commits suicide. She had a lot of, you know, she was unhappy in her personal life and unhappy in her professional life. And there was a lot going on with her. She commits suicide. She jumps out of her sixth floor uh, apartment in, in uh, Los Angeles and dies. And as we said earlier, it's this thing of, of, of the parents of Art Linkletter saying, like, why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why did this happen to our family? Why did this happen to my, my daughter? You know, what, what is the reason? What, what did I miss? And, and so then the story, you know, he's so desperately searching for an answer that at one point he kind of hears that, that she was, you know, that she was on LSD. And so he, then that becomes the reason it's like, okay, well, that's why this happened. And it wasn't really her fault. And this is, you know, there's another insidious thing here that if you are a religious person, if you're a parent and you're religious, a lot of religions teach that suicide is a mortal sin, which means that you cannot be saved. And, you know, there are people who are agnostic or atheist and that, you know, they don't believe that. And, but there are a lot of people who are religious and to them, they take that seriously. The idea that if you die committing a mortal sin, that your soul cannot be saved. And so the idea though, that it was LSD, you know, that in, in a way it takes a lot of, it minimizes, it doesn't make it all all right, but it actually answers a lot of those issues. And it, it, you know, it helps to alleviate some of that wondering and some of that worry. And so the story becomes, okay, well, this is, you know, LSD is the reason. And so Art Linkletter gives this press conference and he says, well, it wasn't her fault because she wasn't herself. She was on LSD. Turns out then they they ended up, you know, they were not really able to test for LSD at that at that point. But, you know, the long and the short of it is that um, the story sort of became that she was having an LSD flashback. That was kind of the final version of the story that she was having an LSD flashback. So Art Linkletter was 
by 1970 is already primed to see, to agree with Richard Nixon, with whom he was a close friend, he was primed to see LSD as being just this unalloyed evil, this thing that could strike at the at your soul and change who you were forever and make, you know, and, and could come back in a flashback a year or five years later and ruin your life. And so he was really primed to help any to help on with the war on drugs any way he could. And Richard Nixon, who you know, Richard Nixon was uh he was many things, but you know, one thing Richard Nixon was not was was uh you know he wasn't stupid. And and Richard Nixon and his, you know, and his staff absolutely saw that, saw Diane Linkletter's death and Art Linkletter's, you know, sort of reemergence as this anti-drug warrior. The Nixon administration saw that and thought, we can take advantage of that and we can leverage that into public support for the war on drugs. And as a result, Art Linkletter was instrumental in helping to get Go Ask Alice published because he saw it as bringing as a true story that America needed to hear. Yeah, and I was just going to add to that. I mean, the Diane Linkletter thing, it was a big story, and it's sort of gone into pop culture more at this point. You know, I think it gets mentioned in one of uh, David Foster Wallace's novels. And then, of course, John Waters, the the great sort of camp uh, comedy filmmaker who did Pink Flamingos, one of his first films was a short film called The Diane Linkletter Story. So this was like major national news. And I think the the water short film came out in like 1970. So this was a big deal when it happened. Um, and I love that you end the book with this link letter quote, and we'll wrap up with this, but uh, he has a quote at the end of the book. We project our own paranoia onto the young. They are the dark and confused result of what we have filled to be. And that's from drugs at my doorstep, 1973 by art link letter. Uh, maybe you could talk about why you included that specific quote at the conclusion of the book. Now, because Art Linkletter is a really fascinating character to me. And, you know, he's sort of, it's a little bit unfortunate in the sense that he, from my perspective anyway, he went from, character's not the right word, but it's, uh, but, you know, it, for a long time, he was just viewed, America viewed him as just being just this, this very, you know, charming, sort of funny, very likable kind of every dad. You know, he was just, he, he was sort of America's, as I said, he was sort of America's dad in that way. He was very beloved. And, then as soon as, you know, after Diane Linkletter commits suicide and Art Linkletter, you know, kind of puts everything on hold to become this really fire-breathing anti-drug activist, to a lot of people, you know, a lot of people then sort of re reframed how they thought about him. And even now there's people who, you know, to remember him as being, you know, they, they only remember Art Linkletter as being this very, like, angry, embittered, um, unreasonable anti-drug activist. And one of the things I was really wanting to do with this book, and it's it's a small part of the book, but it's but it threads through it, is that you know Art Linkletter actually over the course of his life, and over the course of you know the the decades after Diane died, he really became much more reasonable and intelligent and thoughtful about drugs to the point that you know for the so for the first couple of years after Diane Linkletter died. Art Linkletter was absolutely just, you know, he was very much in the like, we had to lock him up and and maybe we maybe we should not even lock him up. Maybe we should just round him up and execute him. I mean, he was very, very, um, you know, uh, in favor of just draconian punishment and enforcement, you know, when it came to drug use. But eventually, as he himself said, he was just like, he's like, I just burned out on being angry all the time. And eventually he stood, he sort of stepped back, stepped back and took a breath. And he thought, you know, 
what can we really do to help stop drug abuse and to help stop suicide and to help young people and and just started to you know became much more open minded about you know he says and I'll get this wrong because I don't have it in front of me but you know but he says said something to the effect of um he said uh he said, I started out thinking that it was us against them, good people against the monsters. And he said, and now I realize that unless we stop and listen to each other and search for answers together, we'll never find them. And that was sort of, a, I mean, it was an amazing thing to say then. It actually sounds almost more amazing now because now, you know, nobody is willing to change their mind or give an inch on anything, it seems like. It's like you dig in and this is my side and that's your side and there's no common ground. And it's not just that we disagree, it's that you're my enemy because we disagree. And he, to his credit, you know, and well into middle age, he said, uh, you know, he said that he said something about, you know, try to learn from people who know things that you might not and don't assume that you understand everything entirely. And, and that quote you mentioned at the end of the book where he says, you know, um, our children are the dark and confused result of what we have failed to be. We project our own paranoia onto the young. If I can sort of like wrap this up with my, the theme, you know, one of the themes of, of this book, if I'm asked Alice, is that it, a thing that happens again and again in the story is adults, sometimes with the best of intentions, sometimes out of naivete, sometimes out of their own uh, sort of um, self-interest or selfish self-interest. It's adults. Um, it is adults uh, choosing the right, trying to help children or claiming that they are trying to help children and, and, not always thinking it through and sometimes choosing exactly the wrong path to do that on and 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 about how terribly difficult it is to try to you know solve things like depression or mental illness or drug use and um you know and how it's the only way forward really is to you know is to truly analyze it and to look at it honestly and to not default to choosing simple answers if I could, because I had just thought yeah. of this and, and you could just be brief here with this one, but uh, it's interesting with what you mentioned about parents with good intentions and, and you know, the, the discourses around these sort of matters. With Go Ask Alice, I've always found it interesting that there was pushes to sort of censor the book at, at various schools. And I find it interesting that the reason people don't want their kids reading that book is because of profanity and, and, and frank sex in it. And it's never about well, this book isn't really probably written by an actual teenager. It's, right. it's kind of fictional. Like I've always found interesting that the reason people dislike this book, adults, is because they think it's going to corrupt their youths, their kids. Uh, but they're not upset that the book itself seems to actually be fictional. So you're actually giving mm -hmm. kids something where maybe this isn't from the voice of a, a young person. Um, and I was wondering yeah. what you think of that, the whole censorship it's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting uh, dynamic because, as you said, it's it's um, you know, parents often and go ask Alice even now is still one of the most challenged books in American schools and public libraries. Um, I think for the first ten years that the American Library Association did their most uh, ban banned and challenged list, I mean, I think go ask Alice was in the, you know, was constantly in the top ten, and it's still. You, I mean, if you probably do a Google search for it now, you can probably find somebody, somebody somewhere who is trying to get some school or some library to take Go Ask Atlas off the shelves. And, 
And it, as you said, it's, I'd never really thought about that, but that's a good point that it's never that like this thing is being peddled to our kids as though it's true and it's not. And also, by the way, it's giving them incorrect and perhaps dangerously incorrect quote facts about drugs uh, because it is essentially saying on some level, go ask Alice does sort of say that marijuana and LSD and heroin are all equally bad. And which is, you know, if you're, if you, there's a real mixed legacy with Gascalis because, as I said, I, I might have said this earlier that you know there are people who absolutely Gascalis has indisputably saved lives because it there is there is no question that it has kept some people from getting into drugs and alcohol. It's caused other people to 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 get sober and to get clean, and so that's true. At the same time, if you read that book when you're a teenager, and it does say something like, you know, marijuana and heroin or LSD are all kind of the same. And then you get a little older and you realize that's not true. Then you do start to question what else might not be true. And what, to your point about the content, there is a section of this book where I talk about some of the efforts to ban Ask Alice. And it is interesting that most adults didn't seem to quibble with the truth of it. And they didn't really seem, you know, it, they, instead they focused on, as you said, that, you know, the another day, another blowjob. And that that almost blinded them to all of these other larger issues. It's There's this real split that happens with that book and with Jay's journal, which is that adults, you know, parents and other adults tend to, they tend to focus on the behavior on the actual acts, the things that Alice is doing, you know, so it's, they're focusing on the sex she's having and the drugs she's taking and the, the reprobate she's hanging out with. Whereas young people tend to read that book and they identify with just the girl herself. So adults say, I can't believe what she's doing. And young people say, this girl breaks my heart. And my one final thing here is I, I sometimes, um, I sometimes compare Go Ask Alice uh, to the book Carrie by Stephen King because, you know, Carrie is obviously, you know, obviously fiction and, and, and sci-fi or horror fiction at that. You know, it's about a girl who has these pyrotelekinetic abilities. But Carrie is an incredibly popular book with adolescents. And it's not because you know, it's not because young people don't identify with it because they all have telekinesis. Young people identify with it because Carrie is she has all this emotional tumult and she has this contentious relationship with her mom and she feels like an ugly duckling and an outcast. People don't identify with Carrie because of her psychic ability. People identify, that's window dressing. People identify with Carrie because of how Carrie, how, how Carrie White feels and because of, you know, uh, because of the difficulties she faces in life and because of who she is as a person. And you know, and so it is very much a forest for the trees kind of thing in terms of in terms of the banning of Go Ask Alice. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you again, Rick Emerson, for coming on Parallax Views. And of course, uh, my listeners should be able to get the book. I, I want to say through their their favorite indie bookseller because we're big yep. supporters of the indies here. Absolutely. So uh, yep. everyone go get Go Ask Alice and anything else else you want to say in closing, Rick? Uh, just, yeah, as you said, I always say, you know, you can, uh, get it at, at wherever you choose to buy, wherever you choose to buy your books. Uh, it's a hardcover right now. It's also uh, an ebook and there's a, a great audio version as well, read by a very talented voice actor, Gabra Zachman. She did a great job. And, um, yeah, and so you can find out more at, uh, unmaskalice.com or just go to rickemerson.com and it'll take you to the, take you to the sale page. And, um, uh, thanks so much for having me on. I really, uh, I really appreciate it. I enjoyed talking about this. 
Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rick Emerson, author of Unmask Alice, LSD, Satanic Panic, and the Imposter Behind the World's Most Notorious Diaries. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.